Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome back, listeners, to the conclusion of our 300-episode celebration. I'm Patch, and with me throwing frisbee pie plates at ugly-looking cowboys is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Hey, partner. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Also with us, finishing out this series and hoping not to have a ravine named after him, is friend of the show and resident Back to the Future expert, Adam Rakoff. <laughs> Thank you very much. And yes, I, I one thing I don't need is a ravine named after me. It seems that the only way to have that happen is to die in a in a very gruesome death falling into it, either aboard a train or on a horse. <laughs> so I don't need that. But one one fun thing to note right now it is November 12th, 2021, when we're recording this episode, it's almost 10.03 p.m. when the opening of this film takes place, November 12th, 1955, at 10.03 oh. p.m. So oh, this was goodness. not planned. It just happened. But here we are. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> The first title card you see on the screen, it goes November 12th, 1955, 10.03 p.m. And here wow. we are. Wow. <laughs> I love it when things like that come together. <laughs> well, gentlemen, this has been a fantastic road through time and film, and I'm sad to see it end. But alas, like this trilogy, it must be concluded. So this is your official spoiler alert for this movie. If you've listened to the first two, you know that we've been spoiling the heck out of this entire series. So just know that that's not going to change. We are continuing to spoil, to discuss, have a great conversation, and we hope you really enjoy it. So without further ado, I'll get into it with my first question to you guys. As this is the third entry, how do you feel like it lands the plane, or maybe in this case, the DeLorean, of the overall story of Back to the Future as a series? Well, it's probably no surprise. I'm a big fan of this trilogy <laughs> at this point. If you've listened to the first uh, two episodes, what? I think this film does an incredible job of tying up the story of Doc and Marty and their friendship. And it does so in a, a really funny, sweet and romantic way. Yet it still has all of the edge of your seat action and thrills that you got from the first uh, especially from the first film and you know with the train and everything it's just there's so many great fun sequences in this in this movie and uh when you're done watching this film at least for me you feel like you just had the perfect size meal you leave perfectly satisfied there's no loose ends you just get everything you want out of this movie and you don't want more i think we've talked about this before it's one of the rare film franchises where you really can't do any more with this franchise, at least in a, in a uh, cinematic uh, setting. They did everything you needed to do. And even though the film does kind of leave on a bit of a cliffhanger, and again, spoilers, the time train where he says to Marty, Doc says to Marty, we've already been to the future. So, you know, where where are they going? <laughs> I have my theories. We can we can discuss that later but yeah i just think this is a a really great way to wrap up this trilogy and i always just leave with a big smile on my face it just makes me feel good it's a fantastic 
popcorn movie, if there ever was one. Yeah, I really liked it this time around, Patrick. I was telling you, I was joking with you about how I had, I was worried, actually, that I was going to end up like last episode, where I didn't have a lot to say, because I just didn't enjoy it that much. And I remember the last time I watched it thinking that I liked it more than the second movie, but that I found it kind of corny. I don't know what it was. I honestly couldn't tell you, but this time around, I just, it clicked for me. It worked for me so much better than it did the first rewatch I had a few years ago. And I think it ends in a great way. I mean, I still don't think we needed two and three ultimately, but since we have two and three, I'm really glad we got three and didn't end on two because I think that this brings it so much closer back to where the series started and what it does so well. And I, and I think it's because the second film is, you know, understandably it goes in this darker direction for a lot of that movie. This movie, I would describe it as it's almost so sickly sweet that it can be a turnoff to some people, I think, because it's just oozing charm and its its simplicity is a, is a highlight to me because the second film got so wild and took you in so many different places and tried to show you so many different things. This movie, yes, we get the convoluted time travel stuff in the very opening scene when they're talking about it. I lit, my brain was about to break. I was so I was worried. I was like, "Oh my gosh, I can't remember this movie very well. Is that what I'm going to get this entire film because I'm going to be in trouble?" But then once I was I just checked out. I was like, "I don't care. I don't care about why and and the timelines because when we get pretty quickly to the west we stay there and it's just an adventure it's one fun adventure and for me i think what i mean there's lots of little elements and things that i like about it but i think the key to what makes it such a great conclusion is that the best parts of back to the future one and best back to the future two are when doc and marty are together and this movie is all doc and marty together it takes that element of it and it like makes that the centerpiece and you can't not enjoy those two characters. Like everything that happens around them, even when you find it silly sometimes or too sweet and too, you know, simple or too, you know, I don't know the backgrounds or they look, you can tell this is on a film stage. Like it doesn't look like the old West half the time, but those things kind of fell away for me this time because just spending time with those two characters together, it's a great duo. And I think they complement each other. You just, none, none of this franchise would be the same if you didn't have them together. And so I think that's for me, what really elevates three now in the way that I view it and what makes it be able to land the plane, the DeLorean, the train, and to kind of really a, an outstanding ending. I would agree with all that you said, Aaron, and, and you as well, Adam. I think the big thing that I pulled from this was that the the tone of the movie really feels like Back to the Future light in terms of what we got from the first film, how amazing it was. and. I won't call it a stark contrast that we got in the second one. Obviously, it went more corny, more hokey. Adam, you mentioned on our last episode that if Zemeckis had his cake and ate it too, knowing that this would be a trilogy, he probably would have leaned more into the elements of two. What I think we got was a really fantastic balance in this entry 
of the things that made one and two so great. You got the relationship with Doc and Marty that's central to the whole story. You got the simplistic adventure of Back to the Future without all of the complicated, albeit stuff that I enjoy, the why, you know, what are we doing here? And you also stayed compact in terms of the set. So if you look at Back to the Future 2, we went future Hill Valley. We went 1955. We went new 1985. We were all over the place and time. This is just a story set in the Old West, and it really does kind of take elements from the first film and puts them on repeat. I think it's one of those deals where you can get formulaic as long as you feel somewhat refreshed in that formula. We got hints. We all In all three, I think we got a bar scene or a cafe scene where there was a conflict with Biff or a, a descendant of or an ancestor of. And I think that things like that, things like the model, being able to show off how they're going to fix the problem, I think were things that if there was a focus group that existed, that's probably stuff that they brought out. We love these scenes. We love that. And that's what I loved about it. I love seeing some of that familiarity and really kind of going back to those jokes, going back to those jokes in a way that don't feel like you're just sort of going back to the well, but you're re-accentuating the familiarity of the first film. The other thing I enjoyed was the fact that we get that logical conclusion for Doc and Marty. It's satisfying to me. I don't feel like we need to expand on where do Doc and Clara and the kids go now. We can guess. And yes, I definitely want to get you guys' theories on that near the end of the show. But it's nice because we can leave Doc and his family to their own adventures. We can leave Marty and Jennifer to their own adventures. And I really do feel like this is a nice, not exclamation point, but a nice period to this main series because we got what we needed. We got the past, we got the future, we got different settings. And it's easy to just continue to milk that as long as it's successful. I don't know what the box office number said for Back to the Future Part 3, but I would think with its success, there would be the desire to continue to go back to the well. And I like that Zemeckis and Gale have said, as long as they're in charge, as long as they own the rights to the film franchise, there's not going to be another reboot. Now, we've gotten iterations of it, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But I think there's a level of appropriateness that really starts to diminish a property the more you just kind of bleed out that that animal. And for me, that last shot, I think, was the perfect way to say, yep, this is the end. I'm going to leave the theater on a happy note. I I definitely agree, Adam, that these last two entries, all three of them, but these last two, especially with the way in which they were filmed and the way in which they were they were told, is definitely a summer blockbuster, a summer popcorn experience. I don't even remember when the when the third one came out because I know they were filmed back to back. I do remember leaving the theater or finishing up my movie experience of Back to the Future Part Two, getting a little bit of a tease of the I think the second one came out in like November and then I think the third one came out the following summer and I was so jacked about oh my gosh I see look true confession I remember thinking 
there was a shot of Marty after he'd gotten dirty from being dragged around by by Buford in his <laughs> fantastic outfit, by the way, with the with the Adam symbol as part of his as part of his Western outfit. But I remember him being all dirty. I'm like, is this a new character? They look Native American because he was just so dark. And I was like, oh my gosh, are we getting new? Who's who's hugging Doc? That's not Marty. But uh, of course, I found out later what actually happened. So for me, leaving that movie experience, I think, was one of the more satisfying ways to end the trilogy because I didn't want anything else. I wasn't anxious to go back to experience what had happened. It left us open to speculate. And Aaron, you and I have talked about that when we look at movies that leave you sort of hanging on. I saw a tweet that you had responded to with regard to Squid Game having a second season. And I'm in total agreement with you. I love the fact that we're left with wonder, but it's not a definitive, let's get a season two out of it. Because season one was really great. It didn't need a sequel. I don't need that story anymore. Will I watch it if it comes out? Sure, because I enjoyed the property enough. But I think when you are able to know when a series is done, I think that helps you complete it in a way that feels satisfying, not only to the audience, but to the creators as well. And I think that's why when we were talking to Bob Gale last year, you could tell just how proud he was of the franchise and everything that kind of spun off from it. But in particular, those three movies that really helped anchor in a property that has found success elsewhere as well. Yeah, I, I just don't understand that. You know, since you bring that up, I just never will quite get. Well, that's a lie. I do get it. It's money. It's generally money is normally the driving force is people like this thing. And so naturally the inclination is, well, we should give them more of this thing. And even if I don't have it, I should force it because they want it and they'll pay for it. And it, you know, and so those two, I guess there's an equal part of that. I don't want to say it sound like it's all nefarious and money driven. Some of it's create creatively driven. I'm sure writers want to feel like they're able to give you more of something you like, even if it's not naturally just already there in their heads. But yeah, I don't know why there's such a fascination or I guess reluctance, not fascination, but there's a reluctance to not allow mystery in anything. And just, and it doesn't mean leaving things on a cliffhanger. Like the end of this movie doesn't leave you on a cliffhanger. I wouldn't say there's a way to end a story, end an, an arc end the, end the character development that you are doing while also leaving a mystery. And I think that this movie nails that because sure you could wonder what happens to them after they go off but that's not the story of these three movies the story of these three movies is these characters doing this thing together that clearly delineate an entirely different story now because we know where marty is staying we know marty's done so we don't back to the future is not the story of doc brown and his wife and his kids on a time traveling train you know what i mean so it's okay to leave it there and let audiences have that imaginative experience for themselves of like wondering, oh, I wonder what that could be. Um, and I just, I really do. I respected it so much for that this time around. Well, and I think for the most part, it leaves the legacy of the franchise and of the property. I mean, we're talking about this as our 300th episode. Had this been Friday the 13th, obviously we would have like 11 or 12 entries to cover. But as fascinated as, as I have become with that franchise, that's become watching the documentary uh, about Camp you know, Crystal Lake Memories or whatever it's called, 
it's a fascinating documentary. One thing I noticed and one thing that was consistent with all those, and even with properties like uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, is there is a diminishment to the property over time where you feel like you lose some of that charm. You lose some of that allure of the characters. And so if you take something like, again, like, what is it, Doctor Who? Doctor Who is one of those franchises that gets its success off of new writing and new creators. That's why you have a new doctor every few seasons. What are they going to bring to the table? That's where it kind of leans in. So Doctor Who as a property succeeds in extending itself. But when you have central characters that you've fallen in love with and you start just milking and milking and milking, Aaron, we found that out with Fast and the Furious. We have our limit. Number seven is kind of the end of our love for the franchise. We'll watch the other three, and but we also recognize that it's not what we come to the movies for. It's not why we come to that franchise. We come for the family and for Vin Diesel and Paul Walker and that core group of characters. And those seven movies, as much as I laugh and I say those seven movies, those movies really do hit on that. When it starts deviating, that's when we walk away from it. And it's okay. It's completely fine. But when we talk about the first entry in that series, the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh didn't need to be created, but they were done well enough for us that it, they re-emphasized, they reinforced what it is that we loved about the franchise, what we loved about the characters. James Bond is the opposite of that. James Bond, up until the Daniel Craig arc, was all about Let's see what this guy and his toxic masculinity, what kind of adventure he's going to get himself into next. So it's really interesting to see how franchises handle characters and how they treat their stories. If you're interconnected, you've got to be more loyal to a central character or a central set of characters. Whereas if you're more anthological, like James Bond, like Doctor Who, you can have more of that freedom. Well, I think Bob Gale and Zemeckis recognize that that we don't want to create a universe out of back to the future we want to stay with doc and marty we want them to anchor in and we want to build these relationships around them both good and bad both like positive and negative uh, protagonist antagonist and i think when we get to the end of back to the future three that becomes the end of their story they'll still be friends but it's fitting that doc who had such a reluctance, such a disdain for traveling through time. He, in begin, from the beginnings of Back to the Future 2 all the way through almost to the end of Back to the Future 3, he was like, destroy the time machine, destroy the time machine. And what is the last image? Well, it's him in a locomotive getting ready to go somewhere, <laughs> but it's a time machine because obviously he's showing up with his wife that Marty knows, but also these two kids. So. He's been living for a while now. And so being able to travel through time, he has a renewed sense of, and I think that's there's something beautiful about that. And we don't have to Following. 
And as a as a kid, I, I can go on record and say I am not by default a Western guy. I like neo westerns. I enjoyed the the updated Mag Seven, even though it wasn't high on Aaron's radar as he rolls his eyes. <laughs> but I, my dad grew up loving John Wayne. I did not. I just don't really care for those westerns now. Silverado, Tombstone, love those films. The new westerns that have come out in the last probably 15 years are, for the most part, films I'll go see or I'll watch. But it's going to take some coercion. I mean, I'm not going to just, yes, I want to go see this, even if the cast is just amazing. And so as a kid, I wasn't really excited about going back to the Old West. Excited about Doc and Marty, excited about seeing what was going on here. But I wasn't really keen on this kind of setting because that just wasn't my thing. So for you guys going into this, either for a first time watch as a kid or the rewatches, where did going back to the Old West land for you in terms of kind of what your expectations were or what you saw as beneficial as far as the next layer of the story? Well, I'm somewhat ashamed to say that when I saw this film opening weekend, I think it was the like the 25th, 26th of May, 1990, I had just turned 12. And at that point, I had not seen uh, an actual Western film. I mean, I may have seen clips on TV, just channel hopping, but I never really saw a movie any of the classic westerns you know any of the clint eastwood films i didn't even know who clint eastwood was as a western actor i knew he was an actor and i got that i got the joke he was an, a western actor that obviously no one had seen western movies in the actual old west so i the joke worked but i didn't really know who he was i didn't understand a lot of the western re- references but I did like the Western setting. And in fact, this being one of the first big screen experiences watching a Western set film, this kind of made me fall in love with the Western genre. And I sought out Western movies after seeing this. And I think it was a couple of years later that I saw Unforgiven, which was obviously Clint Eastwood's sort of magnum opus up to that point. <laughs> And very different than this. And very different than this. So (laughs) I obviously realized very quickly that the the Western setting of Back to the Future Part 3 was a much more fun, campy, lighthearted setting than what a lot of the Westerns uh, produced uh, up until that point were like. So it was a bit of a a shock, but in a good way. I really I like the fact that we were suddenly getting Westerns with in the case of Unforgiven, that we're sort of reevaluating that genre. And so as I started to go back and watch the Sergi, Sergio Leone films and other classics, I realized that there was this whole world of films out there that I needed to see. And uh, yeah, I give this movie credit. And I think there was one interesting story that I, I was doing some reading about this movie. And uh, apparently, while they're making the very first film, uh, Robert Zemeckis asked Michael J. Fox uh, what time period he would l- like to go see if he had a time machine. And Michael J. Fox replied that he would love to visit the Old West and, and meet cowboys and, and do all the stuff. I mean, I think a lot of 
actors of his generation grew up on Westerns. And that's just something they all wanted to to do. And this, of course, was not something that was introduced in the first film, but it gave them, it was sort of the genesis of the idea that, well, maybe we should take Marty to the Old West at some point because Michael J. Fox really wanted to do it. And apparently almost the entire crew was, you know, from the cinematographer to the, all the stunt, uh, the stunt people, and even um, Tom Wilson he, he wanted to do all of his own stunts, riding horses, lassoing. Like they all just were so excited to be making a Western movie. I think it, that's part of what I think comes out on in this film is that just the, the sort of love and enjoyment of making this movie is very apparent on the screen. And like Aaron was saying earlier, the second film is very dark. This is very bright. Most of the film is set in wide open spaces during the daytime. There's a handful of, you know, nighttime scenes. But if you think, if you like just picture this movie in your head, for me, the image that comes up is them on the DeLorean and it being pulled by six horses. And to me, that's sort of the the wide open, bright blue sky, daylight. That's what this film is. It's a Western in the sort of traditional sense being the, the visual of it being in I think those those scenes were shot in Monument Valley uh, with you know the the rock formations. So that's what you think of when you think of a western, and and they I think captured that very nicely with this film. Yeah, I do love westerns for the most part, and I maybe that was why when I watched this the first time, I keep saying the first time, the first time I watched it as an adult that I remember it was a few years ago. And I wonder if that might've been partially why I bounced off it and it didn't accept the campiness of it very well. And maybe being prepared for that my second time around with it, I was more ready to accept that that was the tone I was going to go for because it was just so different than any other movie set in the wild, wild West outside of like the wild, wild West or whatever that really silly comedy, terrible one is. Um, but you know, I, I thought that these jokes wouldn't work for me, but the fact that he names himself Clint Eastwood, I found to be hilarious. And I think that a lot of the way that they play off of typical Western tropes is just a lot of fun in this one. And it's also because some of them connect. There's a lot of things that connect in this movie with specifically the first film and kind of fun ways. And I, and I think that that, makes this franchise unique the way that it's it's almost like i think we talked about marvel at one point in this series but it's kind of like a marvel easter egg type of scenario where they plant these things but it was almost unintentional and i found way more of them in this film than i did in the first but getting off topic or tangential to what i was where i was the reason i was getting lost here is because the clint eastwood thing the fact that he named himself clint eastwood i find to be extra interesting since in the first film he's given a name that's also famous and recognizable and yet in this one he kind of chooses to take a name that is famous and recognizable for him for for us as the audience and they don't overdo it i think you could have easily taken that whole clint eastwood thing and run it into the ground in a way that was so obnoxious and annoying that it would not have been fun but they really show some restraint in using like in actually saying the words Clint Eastwood or having him make references 
to, that are Eastwood, you know, adjacent. And so I like that about it a lot. I already mentioned that I think it looks pretty terrible for the most part, as in it looks fake for the most part. I, I never, ever get the sense that I'm actually in the West. I feel 100% like I'm on a soundstage every time I'm watching this movie. So that's one of the only real downfalls of it to me is that it just doesn't sell me on it. But it has all of the aspects of a typical Western, but within the Back to the Future universe. You get your duel, and you get a fun twist on the duel where he's wearing body armor, which wouldn't have existed, obviously, back then. And so he's bringing that element of the future in order to save himself. And I thought that that was really fun. You get your typical saloon and your typical villain walking into the saloon and talking smack. And, you know, you get Marty ordering a, a water, whatever it was, you know, and getting laughed at. And that's just very normal type of fare for this genre. And so I think that they included those things in a really interesting way. And even the aspect of the train, I, I don't know if you plan to talk about that later, Patrick, specifically, but the way that they creatively use to get the DeLorean out of the situation that we're in because they're out of gas that's you know brought on by the fact that we're in the <laughs> the 1880s and there is no gas i think it's really really awesome i think the natural brain takes you to thinking oh well they're probably going to find some way to use horses because this is the wild west and so for them to use a train i just think it is one of the most awesome ideas that we've seen in a movie like this or in the whole franchise and it really adds a lot of value to this for me because, uh, you know, when you get the DeLorean stuck in the West and there's no gas, you, I don't know how you get it out. I mean, I, I can't really think of a lot of alternatives, honestly, to what they come up with. And so it's a pretty brilliant way to take that era and make it work within the context of the world that they built. Um, and then, you know, I, I think just, the way that Buford acts to me, this is another great Thomas Wilson performance. I actually feel like he, I lose him here. Like, I don't even really feel like it's him. He transforms in this particular role, and I like that a lot. Um, he really sells himself as a very prototypical Western villain, bad guy, dumb, but mean and, and brawny. Whereas I kind of think it's more silly when we see the Marty family side and his lineage shown um, in their Western versions. But yeah, I, I think overall, it's just I'm really sold on the setting. It, it transports me into it and I feel very immersed. And I think that that's a win for me. Well, the thing that I enjoy about the third one is that it doesn't feel like it's trying to be authentically Western. It's a wish list of Western. It's spaghetti western. That's what it is. I don't know if I remember this, but were there saloon doors when they walk in, or was it an actual door? I think there was. The way in which Zemeckis and his crew really do embrace the corniness of the West, the tropes of the West, and play it to its strengths are what make this version of the West appeal to me. Because we know, just like in Back to the Future Part 2, that there is a level of 
hokiness and charm in that that is being played out and i think this is more restrained because of the more simplistic story that we get so for me watching doc and marty interact with these characters in the old west sure it's a soundstage but it's a fun soundstage and the way in which these props are used like i love the opening shot with introducing buford and how he grabs marty and just drags him around hill valley and ends up saying you know <laughs> we got ourselves a courthouse high time we had a hanging and you know i noticed this time around when he hangs marty he essentially wraps the rope around him and then pulls him and i'm like that doesn't really work because if he's wrapping it around him wouldn't he just spin out i didn't care what i cared about was watching doc use an 1880s rifle with like a futuristic scope to be able to easily shoot the rope in half and it's the dialogue after that that really makes me happy it's the way in which we see futuristic characters existing in a time frame that is not their own what i also love guys is the fact that doc's been living in this world for eight months so he has fully embraced this and the dialogue between him and marty where he asked him what idiot dressed you up in this he goes you did and it's like yeah he wouldn't have known that because you know this is the old west and this is a home for him and i think when he says in his letter i've been living happily these past eight months in the year 1885 he's settled he is decided in his heart that this is how he's going to live his life and what appealed to me is the fact that we didn't spend a lot of time with him arguing with marty on why he came back like we got that exposition at the beginning with 1955 doc convincing marty to go or assisting marty in going back and then we assume that he's explained to him what's happened and so he's like okay well this is what what needs to happen and of course as you mentioned aaron the simplicity of the problem they ran out of gas <laughs> it's like what do you do with that well uh, all of a sudden a simple problem now becomes more complex because that thing doesn't exist the other day just real quick i was at a gas station ironically and i have a little key dongle for my camry went in to get some something to drink came out my son was with me the key dongle fell off somewhere it had broken off and i'd put some tape on it to whatever and so somewhere between when i picked him up from school and when i left or tried to leave the gas station it got lost so i have this set of keys my cell phone's in the car <laughs> the keys are the the car's locked fortunately i have a manual key that i can turn and do that but for probably the first 10 or 15 minutes i'm like i don't know what to do i don't know what to do why because i was so used to my little key fob doing the you know, doing its thing and i think that's what we get here it was like oh yeah marty's like yeah we'll just run down to the local gas station and get some gas no <laughs> the flex capacitor you know runs on mr fusion and all that stuff but the delorean is just i think it's good i think it's interesting to me that it, it it goes back to the beginning right the first film is we got stuck in the past we got to get home it's point a point mm -hmm. b like that's the only reason we're in the past is because we need to get back 
right? We got we got back. Well, I take it back. We got here. We wanted to not have Doc die, <laughs> but we're here, and now we just need to get back, right? Like that would solve the problem. And in the second film, it's we are going back to try and undo these intricate timelines that are that are very messy. It's not one thing we're trying to achieve. And so I think that's where that simplicity comes in for me is just it's so pared down to one idea of get the thing and get out. And that's all that drives the the plot. And I think it allows everything else around it to kind of shine. Yeah, it's it's what the four... Go ahead, uh, Adam. Oh, I was just going to add that I think... Called you Marty. He almost called you Marty. <laughs> hey, I'll take it. <laughs> I think the thing for me that to to add to that that really works well is that we, I think we can all imagine. Well, if I could go back to 1885 with the knowledge I have now, I could you know I could do anything back then. But no, like our knowledge isn't applicable in that time frame, and in this this film clearly points this out multiple times that all the things, even though Doc's able to rig up a giant contraption to make a single ice cube, it's like, is that really worth, is that worth all that effort? I don't know. But the point being that all that knowledge that he's acquired without the, the, the materials he needs, just like they didn't have plutonium in 1955 to, to get back here, they don't have something as simple as gasoline or when they start to pour, I think it's some kind of alcohol into the DeLorean in hopes that it will work. It, it like causes the, the, something that the the fuel line no the fuel line gets ripped earlier and then the fuel manifold it's the manifold the fuel, yeah and he's that's right and he says it'll take me a month to rebuild it i mean that's a great example like some a mechanic today could do that rather quickly if they have the parts and the tools but for him in 1885 it's it's a month's worth of work just to repair it and even then they don't have any fuel right they have nothing to to work with so i think it's just interesting to imagine going back to a time like this but really it would just be a really dangerous horrible place <laughs> to go back to because what's that movie the uh, thousand ways to die in the west it's not very good but it actually has a little doc brown cameo in it but it's all about just how horrible the west was and how everyone was dying of disease or you know just barely struggling to survive it, it was not a pleasant place not the way it's it's uh, depicted in many movies, at least. And uh, I think this film does a really good job of showing us a, a nice version of the West, but also showing us that, you know, the first thing that happens to Marty is he gets chased by Indians in the cavalry. Then he gets chased by a bear and falls into uh, his family's property and gets hit in the head with a rock. Then he gets walks into town. And what happens next? He gets into a bar fight with Buford, Mad Dog, Hannon, and almost gets lynched. <laughs> so he had a pretty bad 24 hours in 1885. So it's interesting that you mentioned the the way in which we, we think about, oh yeah, it'd be great to go back and have all this knowledge. There's a little bit of foreshadowing that takes place near the very beginning of the movie, and it's really subtle. It's when they discover the DeLorean in the cave, and they're looking at the time circuit component and doc makes a joke by saying well you know it's amazing this small thing could do such a big thing and he says oh here's the thing you know it's because it's made in japan and of course martin says 
What are you getting? All the best stuff's made in Japan. And so a couple of scenes later, what you see is on the top of the DeLorean with, by the way, fantastic white wall tires. If there's no other reason to watch this movie, that's one, to see the DeLorean with white walls. It's just great. But you see this whole like intricate set of of components on top of the DeLorean that take the place of this little thing. And in a way, that kind of foreshadows the fact that they're going to have to be pretty inventive. And now what they have by the end of the movie before the DeLorean gets destroyed is a makeshift time machine. So they've got the 1985 DeLorean with white wall tires with this giant set of components on the hood that take the place of a small piece of uh, circuitry being pushed by a train because they don't have a way to put fuel in it and don't have fuel to put in it. And by the end of the movie, it's really just a skeleton of itself. And so it's almost fitting that it gets destroyed because it's clung through hell and back in terms of its own adventure. And so in a lot of ways, we talk about setting and we talk about supporting characters that are really non-human. I think the DeLorean itself is a fantastic artifact from the series because of its transformation. And uh, I mentioned, I think on our first episode, I have the three DeLoreans that are representative of the three movies, and they're different from each other. So you have the DeLorean from the first film with the giant pole, and then the second one, you have Mr. Fusion on the back, and the third one, you have the White Walls. There's something significant about that. And to know that you have this really cool state-of-the-art machine in a time like the Old West, that doesn't necessarily mean you have an advantage. And so I think that's a really great point that you bring up, Adam, that you you don't always have the best when you're more superior in terms of your technology, especially if that technology can't be taken advantage of. So I think right. I think it's a great choice to have the Old West because it gives Doc and Marty a brand new challenge, even though, as you said, Aaron, they're doing the same thing. They're trying to get back to the future and they need a component to do that. In the first film, it was the flux capacitor that needed to be charged by a bolt of lightning at 1.21 gigawatts. Now they need to get it pushed up to 88 miles per hour. That one thing that we talked about in the first film, that arbitrary number, why is it 88 miles per hour? It doesn't matter. It just has to get up to 88 miles per hour. And just has to be consistent. Exactly, too. right? Yeah. And, it was. and so it, it takes that crucial conversation with the train conductor to say, hey, can you get it up to 90? You have to hear him say, if you can get the fire hot enough and you weren't you were on a straight stretch of track and you weren't carrying any cars, yeah, it might be possible to do that. Now it just takes a little bit of movie science to get that to its logical conclusion. And that's where Doc comes in and says, I've got these these nitrous sticks <laughs> that I think are just incredible. <laughs> but uh but yeah, I think I think the West is a fitting place for them to end up going for this third entry to get them back to eventually their respective destinations. Yeah, you, you said something that I never really thought about, the fact that the DeLorean in this film in the West is really just a shell of the of what it used to be. The only thing that matters in the DeLorean at this, at, in this movie is the flux capacitor and the time circuit. So essentially, I never thought about this, they could have, Doc could have removed those components, perhaps, and Put them, put them in, on the train itself. Yeah, and made the, maybe that's what he ends up doing later on. I don't know. But yeah, or put them in 
a box or something and had dropped it some, <laughs> from somewhere so that it could just accelerate fast. Clearly, the only thing that mattered was that it was accelerating to 88 miles per hour and then it could work. So something about the speed, again, doesn't matter why, right, as long as it follows its rules and is consistent. But yeah, I never really thought about that. Like, are there any other ways they could have made this work? But they, you know, like you said, they found, I think, Aaron, you said, I think they found the best possible solution with the train pushing the DeLorean and it it makes perfect sense. And I love the whole idea of you're not thinking fourth dimensionally, Marty, you know, and they he's like, but there's no there's no bridge. <laughs> it's like, no, there will be. So that's just such a fun concept, you know, that that uh, and of course, I think people have discussed this before that this doesn't take into uh, account things such as the Earth's movement and rotation and its position that, you know, if you're moving through time, in theory, you would be moving to the exact place in the past where the Earth was. So you would be in the middle, in the middle of space, <laughs> not the point the Earth would be, unless you've timed it perfectly where the Earth had, you know, come into the exact same spot uh, in its orbit. But these are like... Uh, for this type of movie, it's it's overboard to think about. But this would be what Christopher Nolan would do. Yeah, this is what Nolan. Yeah, would exactly. Do. He would try to figure all that at all those scientific <laughs> aspects out. And of course, we'd watch that because Aaron and I love Christopher Nolan. <laughs> I, I do too. Yeah, he's so good. He's so good. Well, let's talk a little bit about Doc Brown himself because Adam, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking just over Messenger about this entry is really Doc's story. Now, Doc and Marty are the anchors, but we actually see some fulfillment of what Doc maybe didn't think he wanted or think he could get or really have. In our first episode, we talked about him being sort of a father figure, grandfather figure, because he didn't have kids. But it's never really explained why. Why didn't he marry? We assume that it was because he was just isolated, that he was eccentric, that he didn't have time to do that he was always doing something scientific and back to the future 3 gives us a chance to see that to see what would it be like if doc fell in love and of course that's foreshadowed by the by the gravestone and he's like this is just crazy when i watch this entry and i think about it from his perspective it really feels satisfying because by the end of the movie, I feel like both Doc and Marty get what they need. I don't say what they want, but they get what they need. And to see how Doc struggles with this idea of following his heart versus following his head. He's a scientist first. So to let that go, I think showed in a really gentle way with him. And one of the conversations that stood out to me was, Right before he goes and tells Claire the truth about who he is, Marty's talking to him and says, no, we can't do that. You have to understand, Doc, this is, this is who you are. And even Marty extends an olive branch by saying, why don't we just take her with us? And you see Doc kind of contemplate that for a second. And then he says, no, I have to be true to my own principles. And watching it this time around, I really kind of leaned into his struggle about, man, that's a hard decision. This isn't just flirtation. This isn't just he found some woman that he was attracted to. I mean, he genuinely started to fall in love with her. 
And if you if you follow that, if you believe that, if you believe that it's not just an infatuation, we we shouldn't believe that it's just an infatuation because he's had years and years and years and years and years to find that person or to be infatuated with women, uh, with whoever he runs into contact with. Something about Clara did something to him. Maybe it was because he rescued her. Maybe it was because the fact that they bonded over science and Jules Verne. Whatever the case is, his relationship with her became very significant. And to have to leave that, not to lose that, really made an impact in that final action set piece where he is trying to decide what matters more his future the future of the universe or his love for clara and obviously we get a fitting into that but i love the struggle i love the fact that he has to kind of work through that and it's played for laughs he goes and sits up in a bar all night not drinking a thing and just kind of blabbers on about the future but it just pays itself off later on with the conversation with the barbed wire salesman and his partner on the train and Clara hearing about how in love he was with her. It's just, it's such a romantic thing from an unconventional place. And I thought that that was a great add in for this entry to see that doc really does have feelings beyond just his science stuff. We know that he cared deeply about Marty. We saw that in the first film and we saw pockets of that throughout the rest of the series. But to see him be able to extend his heart a little bit beyond just his relationship with Marty as a, as a, as a partner, to see him give that heart to, to Clara, it really did kind of round him out more as a character. And I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I, I did too. I think I like that this film finally let Doc grow as a character. He he becomes more of a human being and not just this kind of mad scientist sort of stereotypical character who invented a time machine. Like that's, he really has a purpose in the first film. That's his purpose, right? That's it. He, he becomes a more well-rounded character in this film and his relationship with Clara, I think just that she, Hey, first of all, she was a great casting choice, great addition. And I felt, I never felt like they didn't work that their chemistry didn't work they, it it did feel like love at first sight it felt like these i can totally see how these two who are sort of outsiders in their own way found something almost instantly in one another that they both needed and you mentioned how yeah he doc never had time for love i always kind of thought that back in 19, between 1955 and 1985, that 30 year span where he was developing the time machine and he used all you know, his entire family fortune to do that, that that was that's that was his his sort of passion. That was his purpose. He didn't have time for love. But now he achieved his greatest invention. You know, he he invented time travel. So now there's a, there's a sort of opening in his heart for something more. And he even kind of alludes to it in the second movie. What does he say? He says, I, something like, he makes a joke about how he, he wants to uh, solve the universe's other great mystery, women. women yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think that was a little bit of a, of him saying, I haven't figured that part out. I've figured out everything about science, everything about time travel, but I haven't really 
found someone uh, that I can fall in love with yet. Although, clearly, he has some dance abilities <laughs> because he's dancing quite well with Clara. And even Marty says, like, the doc can dance. <laughs> so maybe in his earlier days when he was in college or whatnot, he, he, he had a few relationships. But he definitely feels like a character that always put his work and his science before sort of personal personal relationships outside of you know the, the relationship he has with Marty but i just think that that was the most unexpected addition to this film is her is clara's addition and i think it it works so beautifully and even we talked offline about the beautiful poster art for the entire trilogy by Drew Struzan where in the first film it's just Marty stepping out of the DeLorean looking at his watch in the in the second film it's Marty and Doc and in the third film it's Marty Doc and Clara and they're all looking at their at the watch the stopwatch together and I think those posters are such a great example they summarize what these movies are about each movie the characters grow and we get to learn more about each of them. And the, in, in the final chapter, we get to see a new character that essentially makes Doc a whole character, finally. And yeah, it is, it is interesting, though, as we discussed how he was constantly going on and on about how I've never wished I invented that infernal machine. We have to destroy the DeLorean. And here he is at the very end with a time-traveling tra train that he invented at some point after Marty returns. And clearly he's changed his his thinking. Uh, but there is one thing that I think he he was true to in that he told Marty in part two that I didn't invite invent the time the time machine for personal gain with the sports almanac. And he's basically following his own advice here when Marty turns that around on him and says, you know, why don't we take her with us? And he's like, no, we can't do that. Just as I told you, we can't do this. Uh, so Clearly, he signed the scientific part of him was at war with his uh, sort of with his heart. He he was completely um, torn up inside, I think, throughout the, the, the middle of this movie, trying to figure it out. And he ultimately went with the logical side and decided to let her go to cut her loose. And it was only because Clara followed him. It was one of those another situation where it he doc didn't choose to do this it happened to him he had to save clara he had to he was forced to give up going back with marty to save clara and that again was something that doc did out of necessity not because uh, although really the, the logical side of him should have said well i should let her die because she should have died in clayton ravine originally if i want to set the timeline right but in the end, it all works out because, and, I, and they obviously knew this as uh, as they wrote the story, that because she was supposed to have died, her being pulled out of the timeline wouldn't change or alter history in any way that would affect the, the timeline. So I think, I think it's just a great relationship. It really feels genuine. And I, I've always thought Mary Steenburgen was a great actress, and she just did a great job in this movie. And uh, there's another movie she was in called Time After Time, where she kind of plays a very similar role, which I think is why they cast her. I, I believe, if I, if I remember correctly, I read somewhere that they specifically wrote this role for her with because of her her um, part in that movie. 
But yeah, I, I, I like it. I like everything about their their relationship and the way that they form a family together and have two boys named Jules and Vern. I think it's all just, it all works out perfectly. Yeah, I love that you brought up there at the end about the fact that he's not necessarily making the choice because it's really easy to look at this and see it as him going back on his own advice and what he says about you can't change it just to get what you want. He does sort of make out in the end here because he gets to live multiple lifetimes of, and that was never the point. It was to go back for science and to observe. And I think that, you know, you could nitpick it and say, well, that's not realistic that her living and the creation of two new human beings that never would have existed doesn't change the timeline. It changed the timeline. If, if little details that we've seen already in the series can change the timeline, that would change the world's timeline as well. Obviously not in a way that is noticeable to our storytelling. And so that's fine because it works out and we want it to work out. But yeah, I, I like that it's not him choosing that, that it's him responding to the situation in the logical way, which is to save her because any, hopefully any human would want to do the same and be willing to sacrifice themselves in order to do so and it's just it's almost like he's being you know rewarded for doing the right thing in essence he gets what is best for him without having to choose it from a selfish manner um but i i love it i love this entire part of the movie i think that this is such a huge huge aspect of why it's great and why it's way better than two for me because you have this romance and this unique experience for him that we don't get to see at all in the previous two films it's awesome i love it and i think that it is a natural progression of storytelling i think it's a piece of his character that we never got to see that we definitely should get to experience and as an audience, we want to experience. We want that for him in so many ways. And if, you know, he's going to come back to the future and Marty and he are going to go their separate ways. Like Marty's future is progressing with Jennifer. It's not Marty and Doc. They're not going to be a tandem together forever. So now that they've spent their time together, they've gone through these adventures. Like what happens to Doc? He comes back and just, how does he do that? How would he ever realistically come back and be alone? and live normally after this experience. It's human nature to need someone else. Marty goes through all this, and he gets to come back and share it with Jennifer, ultimately, or have her to look forward to a life. Doc doesn't have that. So I think it's easy for us to emotionally connect with that and just be sucked into it. And I think Mary Steenburgen is awesome acting-wise in this. I think she plays this character so well she is just written just perfectly to be the match for doc brown like exactly like i don't think i could imagine better traits for her to connect with him and be the perfect person for him um, and, I, and i like how that plays out with him being like no i actually did write patrick a note during this afternoon when i was rewatching it though because i was like when we talk about free will so there's this element of this that does kind of like if you really it's one of those like nitpicky things like the like you were talking about with the point of the earth in time travel 
if you think about this too deeply, you can get yourself a little out of whack with it because Doc knows that he's going to die. And he is supposedly it's because he falls in love with this woman. So he has foreknowledge that this is what is supposed to happen. And so when he meets her and he says previously, like, I'm not going to fall in love at first sight. That's not possible. But then it happens. Can it truly happen via free will if he has this knowledge that it's supposed to happen? Like, how much does the knowledge that this is what fate happens actually impact that reaction to her? Is it like heightened because of that, you know? And so I, I was like getting myself all in a fit, like thinking about this. I was like, well, what if he didn't know? Would he have actually fallen in love with her at first sight if he wasn't aware that he was supposed to fall in love with her, you know, or would he be more likely not to? And so it's even more powerful of an obvious thing like that he did because he was fighting against it and then still did. And anyway, it's fun. It's fun. And I, I think that they make for their scenes together are just, there's so much joy in them. I think we want the best for Doc in this series. In the end, at least I did more than I cared about what happened to Marty. Like, I know Marty's going to turn out okay. Like, if he has some problems to deal with, he's got a long way to go. But I wanted Doc to have the happy ending. And so I think being able to see that play out in a way that is so resonant with us as humans is just the perfect choice. Well, and when you look at what Doc says at the end about the future, he says no one's future has been written. I think that his relationship with Clara has either scientifically made that a fact or in his principles, in his mind, he has chosen to believe that, that we can't rely on a, a faxed piece of paper. We can't rely on a photo that has a tombstone that, is inscribed and then not inscribed and then inscribed again. And that's another thing I like about the conclusion of this movie. You could obviously make the argument that no, everything about these three movies has said that our future is not undefined, that there obviously we can go in the future. Something's got to be done about our kids. That would still happen. But I think what the, what Bob Gale and Zemeckis are trying to do is they're trying to really tell us through Doc's journey, you can't science everything. You have to leave things up to chance or up to fate. And you guys said it so poignantly. The universe brought he and Clara together. She's the one that came back to him. He made the choice to rescue her, not because he was ready to spend the rest of his life with her. Yes, that was part of it. But that wasn't the driving force. He needed to rescue her because she needed rescuing. She was going to die if he didn't. And when you watch that play out, you start to realize that, like Doc, not everything is cut and dry. Not everything is ones and zeros, experiments that have conclusions that you can prove or not prove. His life can't be peer-reviewed, right? He has to be able to live it. And I think when he shows up in that train and he shows off his future, which is Jules and Vern. I think it's a different doc, a more mature doc, a more rounded out doc that we get. And watching Marty look at him and be happy for him, that's when I know 
this is it. This is a great way to finish it. In the same way, we get Marty's subplot of this through line that sort of hinted at in the first film about being a chicken, about not having worth. He learns that same lesson. He learns a similar lesson about the fact that the choices you make actually do alter the future, but you can choose to be different. You can change your stars as as the uh as the movie would say. We we are able to change ourselves in order to make our future different. And I think watching how Marty grows as well, just like with Doc, he goes from caring about what people think about him, you know, being called the chicken or thinking that he has no future as a musician, feeling like he's going to be a failure to getting to a place where he actually has to face down his demons with Mad Dog Tannen. And he sort of comes to the conclusion and he says, he's an, he's an a-hole. And I love his counterpart, same, you know, Seamus, kind of give him a nod like, yeah, that's what, I don't need to care about what he or anybody else thinks. Doesn't change the fact that he has to stare him down and have a little gunfight with him. But at this point, then he gets strategic and he's able to not have to prove himself. That he understands that there's something bigger than his own ego here. And so he learns as well. And I think that's really, really clever that throughout this trilogy, that's one thing that has been consistent, but it hasn't been at the forefront. And so just like Doc meets his fitting conclusion, this is the fitting conclusion for Marty. Not to avoid the car accident with racing needles, but to really realize that it's not about not being called chicken. It's about not letting people get to you by recognizing that your future is what you want to make it. And you can live or you can live in fear or you can live to thrive. And I think that's the lesson he learns from from Doc that he doesn't have to be reliant on what other people think about him, but more so he just has to be able to live a full life doing the best that he knows how. You're going to be surprised. The part about him not being able to be called chicken or yellow or whatever is the one part of the second and third film that always felt just a little forced to me. It felt new, like it wasn't there in the first film and it always felt a little out of place. I really like the idea behind it because his father obviously was sort of a, a you know, a, a guy that was pushed around. He never stood up for himself. Marty, didn't like that about his father in the original timeline. And I think therefore he always wanted to be the opposite of that. He wanted to be somebody that wouldn't get pushed around that would stand up for what was right and for himself when someone called him out. So I think the, it was the seeds were planted in the first one, but because they just kind of throw it at you in the second film, when Griff calls him chicken and all, and then it, it happens repeatedly throughout the movie. It just always felt a little bit forced to me, but it's not a huge issue. I think it works in terms of how it all resolves itself at the end. As you said, he doesn't take the challenge of drag racing with needles and doesn't get into the accident with a Rolls Royce, and therefore his future is is altered. the The entire future that Doc 
took him to now doesn't necessarily happen, right? Because really, that's the one event that Doc should have prevented if he took him into the future. He should have said, let's go to the future a few days and prevent you from getting into that car accident <laughs> with the Rolls Royce. Because clearly, everything from then on was a ripple effect, right? Because he injured his hand, they say, and he couldn't play music anymore. And that made him end up working a job that he didn't really like, which was working for needles. And that ultimately got him fired from his job. So it was just this chain reaction of bad things from that point onward. And I like that they were able to tie all that together. But like I said, I just found it to be a little bit inconsistent with his character from the first film. And if they had even one scene in the first film where he someone says, what are you, chicken? And he said he's like, he can't help himself. He has to stand up for somebody. And he does. Like, he stands up for people. He's clearly got that in his persona. But that sort of specific, when people call him chicken, always just felt a little off to me. You know, I don't like it in the second film. I feel like it's out of nowhere and out of place. And just, you know, like a lot of things in that movie, it just felt kind of new and didn't really connect for me. But I really like it in this film, and it's because of the resolution and the way that it wraps itself up that I'm not retroactively enjoying it in the second film and its addition. Like, I could, you could take it and leave it. I think it works because of how well they do finalize his storyline in a way that shows growth for him. And I think that that's the key, is because Marty is not a perfect kid. He's still young. Like he has a lot of growing up to do and it gives him an aspect of his character that can be altered. That shows a level of adulthood. I think that makes for me him feel like someone who has gained something tangible out of this whole experience more so than just I've witnessed how bad it is to time travel and mess with things you know like he's he's changed as a human being and he is a better person he's going to be a better husband and a better father moving forward because of this thing and i think that the way that they implement it with both the duel and him taking on that challenge and putting himself at risk and the ultimate last shot of the drag race which i think is just a perfect way to end this whole series. Uh, I think it works out just, I, I don't think it could be any better. I think it's excellent. And so, you know, in context of it being introduced in the second film, when it probably didn't need to be, they did the bang up job to make sure that it mattered in a way that was meaningful. In my opinion, before we uh, finish out our discussion, I wanted to open it up to see if there was anything else that, you guys wanted to talk about in particular with with this movie before we officially call it quits on the series well as with each subsequent viewing of these movies i always notice or learn new interesting fun facts or easter eggs that i hadn't noticed before and that's again part of why i i love these movies and really appreciate them because so many movies you watch them once and you're done. You're like that. I, even if you like it, it's like, that's it. I, I, I enjoyed it. I don't need to revisit it. <laughs> but these are the types of films for me, which I can just 
every few years revisit. And as I said in previous episodes, if I watch one, I'm probably going to watch all three. But in this movie in particular, here's my quick rapid fire things that I noticed. (laughs) Um, Most people think that the first time that we as an audience see Clara Clayton, Mary Steenburgen's character, is when Doc saves her from falling into the ravine. But she's actually standing behind Marty and Doc at the train station when they're looking at the map and discussing Shonash Ravine. She is standing in the background, her her back turned, waiting for Doc to show up and take her to the schoolhouse. But he decides not to do that because he doesn't want to accidentally fall in love with her. So they included her in that in that scene in a very very smart way it it just again clearly shows that every detail everything in the background out of focus and i'll send you a a still i grabbed a screen grab of this so you can see it it's so like you can blink and miss it but there she is <laughs> so that's one the next one is the one i was talking about earlier where someone noticed this in i think 2015 and it kind of uh, blew up. This is around the 30th anniversary of the first film, and I guess that that would have also been the 25th anniversary of this of this film. Uh, when Doc and Marty go to the train and you know hold it up essentially for a science experiment, they're both wearing band- bandanas. If you remember, Doc's bandana is made up of the shirt from the future that he wears in Part Two. And it's like this really this patterned multicolored shirt that has pictures of trains and horses on it, of all things, trains and horses, the two things that they need, that they use to try to get back, get the DeLorean back in time. So it's very it's it's like inside. It's like the reverse side of it. So it's hard to see. But if you freeze and look at it, you'll see it is the shirt he's wearing, the futuristic shirt that he's wearing in the alleyway in 2015 so that's that kind of blew my mind i was like how did they even think about that he clearly had to had that shirt in his luggage in the back of the delorean (laughs) and when he got accidentally sent back to 1885 he he kept it he's he's using it for something um so there's that one um a couple other fun ones which i never noticed when they're in 1955 at the drive-in movie theater you you see Marty come out of the chair of the restroom. You know he, he's he had just changed into the uh, Western outfit that Doc, Doc purchased for him, and he mentions Clint Eastwood, and and obviously Doc doesn't know who Clint Eastwood is in 1955. And Marty says something like, "Oh yeah, you you haven't heard about him yet." And right next to Marty are two movie posters, and it's the movie posters are Revenge of the Creature and Tarantula. And those happen to be Clint Eastwood's first on-screen appearances in uncredited roles where he plays a lab technician and a jet pilot. (laughs) So, I mean, they really think about these things. They went, they go to such great lengths to just to give viewers so much from viewing and reviewing these movies. And then a couple other just kind of fun things that I, I, I wanted to bring up and then I'll, I'll stop rambling. <laughs> I really love the scene when they're looking at the tombstones and they're talking about how the name 
how Doc's name has changed, has been erased, but it could, Marty's could, could, could appear. And I love that Marty says, great Scott. And then Doc says, I know this is heavy. I just, that was such a great reversal on the first film because obviously those are the, the lines that they both said. And, and Doc, of course, is like, what, why are you, why is everything so heavy in the future? Is there something wrong with the Earth's gravitational pull? And here he is using it as just part of his everyday vernacular. Uh, and clearly, Marty has rubbed off on him over the years. So I, I love that. I love the fact that when he's, when Marty's, you know, pointing the gun in the mirror and he's quoting Taxi Driver, again, at, at age 12, I had not seen Taxi Driver. So I didn't know that. You talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. I didn't know that was from Taxi Driver. I, I thought it was from a Western. I was, and clearly it's not. And then, he, of course, right after he says that, he says, "Go ahead, make my day." From Dirty Harry, uh, also not a Western, but clearly the films of the '70s were very influential <laughs> on young Marty McFly because that's like where he gets all of his his lingo in this movie. Uh, yeah, there's one or two other uh, fun things. I was always one. I was always curious about the train crash at the end of the film. I was like, this is so good. They must have just blown up a train. And I, I did a little digging and it turns out that they built like a scale replica of a train miniature and shot it in slow motion and drove it off a cliff, you know, a, a ledge and blew it up. And it looks amazing. It looks like a real train blowing up and it's just a, essentially a model train. And that to me is a lost art. I, I mean, you if you did that with CG, you would know it's CG. And I'm not saying every effect shot in this movie was perfect. There's a few that didn't quite work for me, like when uh, Doc and Clara are sort of hovering away on the hoverboard. That always just looked a little off to me. But uh, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of practical effects, shooting shooting miniatures, and I just thought that was a, a an amazing uh, effect sequence. So yeah, so those are my uh, my bit. There's a, there's actually quite a few more, but I don't I don't have time to go into them all. These are the ones that for me really stood out and really just kind of blew my mind, especially the shirt being used as his mask and the fact that the two Clint Eastwood film posters were were right next to to Marty in the drive-in theater. I thought those were fantastic little touches. Yeah, those were two facts I did not know about until you mentioned them. Those are great. Great nope, one. certainly did not know <laughs> those things. That was that is awesome. I love details like yeah, that. Yeah, and I will co-sign the practical effects in this series as a whole, but in particular this third entry, they really leaned into those practical effects and for the most part nailed most of them. I we didn't mention this in the first, well, in the second movie, but the use of doubles and green screen. I think yes, you can see where things are a little off. There's a conversation with. Marty and Seamus at the at the dance where I believe the way they got the effect was they filmed Marty on a green screen by himself and then Seamus and his wife were talking to nobody from from their perspective but still it's a it's a really cool effect um when he hands his uh his great great grandfather off to Marty and as he hands him off uh his wife passes in front of the in front of the camera to create that that clean break so you don't see you know the special effect i thought that's that was a really cool effect back in the day and the ability to have the same character the same actor acting in two different spaces for the most part worked for me and it still does i can see some of the some of the green screenery but for the most part it's really good 
Just a couple of quick notes before we finish. Uh, if you're interested in the Back to the Future universe, there's a fantastic Telltale game series that I have played. It's really fantastic in terms of expanding on the story. It, I think the latest iteration has the original actors voicing the the characters on screen. I don't believe the the original production had Michael J. Fox. I know Thomas Wilson was in it, and I believe Christopher Lloyd was in it, but it's a really great game series. If you played Telltale Games and you know the mechanics of it, it plays right into that. Also, Adam, I know you've read the comics, and if you want to speak to those, I think uh, from from what I've heard, I've read a couple of them, but I know that there's a lot of great stuff out there. So yeah, know. they're they're a lot of fun. Uh, I think they started in like 2014 or 2015 and ran for about four or five years. Uh, I've I've I have a most of them, I would say. Uh, I'm a big comic book collector reader, so. I was ready to jump on board and and knowing that the they aren't necessarily canon that's okay. I like the fact first of all Bob Gale oversees the the story oversaw the development of these of these comics and the stories so you know that they're he's sort of signing off on them and at least saying that in one possible universe perhaps these stories could have taken place with our heroes, right? But they're not necessarily in the official canon of the films themselves. But they're a lot of fun. If you like these characters because of Bob Gale's involvement as the writer of these characters, I think that the writing comes through and the characters continue to come through. They feel like they are extensions of the characters we got to know in the films. And of course, there's also the animated series from the early 90s. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of watching that, but if you have any of the Blu-ray box sets, I believe they include uh, some DVDs with with those episodes on them. And they star Christopher Lloyd as Doc Brown. And <laughs> they're not all very, uh, uh, they're not all the highest quality, but they are interesting. <laughs> and uh, Peyton Reed directed a lot of them, who obviously went on to uh, direct the Ant-Man films for Marvel. So it helped... Uh, a number of individuals uh, in in animation get their start. So, you know, sometimes there there are shows and movies where they may not be the the best, but people got to get their start somewhere. But yeah, I think there's a lot of fun stuff out there, as you say, in the universe, the, the expanded universe that allows people who need the you know, to scratch that Back to the Future itch. <laughs> it's out there. There's content out there. Uh, but I would say the cartoons. I haven't played the games. I'm, I'm interested in that uh, now that you talk about it. But uh, the comics, I, I would say, are probably the best place to get stories that make you feel like you're you're learning more about these characters and and maybe seeing some of the the stuff that we didn't see in the movies, whether it's in between them, before them, or after them, that's kind of fun. Just kind of the what ifs, kind of like the what if or where did they go at the end of of the third film? Do you, do you guys have any theories on that? I was gonna just let let's rapid fire quick quick theory. Where do you think they went? Well, I have two two possible theories. They're both kind of out there, but one is uh, that Doc in addition to mastering time travel, he may have now figured out a way to kind of navigate the multiverse and visit parallel parallel dimensions and 
therefore he could travel to the alternate 1985 and that we see in Fringe and see Back to the Future starring Eric Stoltz and Melora Hardin. So maybe that. But my other idea is, well, maybe he's gone so far into the future, right, that he has modified his time train further into a an interplanetary vehicle and he's taking his family on a little tour of the solar system to see Mars and see other planets to to educate them because Clara loves astronomy and loves space so it could be a logical you know extension of where because he says like well I've already been there right so it has to be someplace that they have not it can't be the past can't be the future so that's where that's where my brain goes the I, I think it is a kind of a silly thing in a sense because I was telling Patrick I was like it has to be the past or the present because he says are you going back to the future? And he says, no, he specifically says no. So then that leaves past and present. And I know what Patrick's first thought is, because he's already told me, and it's not a time, it's a place. And so he never answers where he's going in time. And so that's an interesting thought about parallel dimensions, because I guess that would sort of encompass both time and space and that would be intriguing I, I you know i don't i think i like what patrick's come up with and his reasoning for it so i'm just going to co-sign in advance what he's about to say i think they're going to a bakery no i'm just kidding no, i hold you yes a baker exactly <laughs> i would say that because of the way that the time train goes vertical and the fact that Doc and Clara love Jules Verne, I think they go to space. And I love the idea of traveling to other solar systems. If we're going to take a page out of Christopher Nolan's book, they'll find the black hole, they'll go to another planet, and they'll discover new things. So I think science is still on the table there for Doc and his family to be able to travel. But I love the idea of going multiverse. I love being able to think about how he could do that but my money's still on space just because they haven't been there yet and i whether it's in the past or future that's going to be something really interesting and that could play into what you're talking about adam with regard to the earth and its position and that could really yeah. screw things up so let's well in the multiverse it's kind of they already have in a way now that i say it out loud they visited the multiverse they've created you know as doc says alternate branches of of the timeline they've created new timelines those in that 1985 where biff is uh you know powerful and rich that's an alternate dimension right that's an alternate reality so perhaps he could do that he could visit these uh, additional alternate realities you know one where the south won the civil war or where the nazis won world war ii or whatever right and so he could just visit them discreetly and although the time train isn't the most inconspicuous vehicle, it's kind of a, a bit of a giant. I mean, you would think that maybe he needs a cloaking device, <laughs> needs a, like in Star Trek or something to make this work. But it's uh, yeah, it doesn't it does. Uh, one last thought about that at the very end of the film. Is there nobody near that train track at Hilldale that sees a giant hovering train <laughs> that does 
for no reason, kind of turn. It, if you notice, it like swings towards the camera and goes back, uh, goes away from the camera, then turns around again. Does it need to do that? Because there's no direction, right? Unless the location that they're going in specifically requires that they be in a specific spot uh, when upon re-entry, because he has to uh, reappear somewhere. I don't know. Now we're probably overanalyzing this, but it's what a good movie does, right? It makes you ask these questions, these right. difficult questions. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we've asked and answered enough. There's always more time for conversation. You can do that in our Facebook group. You can also connect with Adam on Twitter to ask him these amazing questions, and he will probably give you probably the most thorough answer of the three of us. So make sure that you connect with him. Adam, this has been fantastic. I know that I have been personally totally excited about each one of these entries the discussion has been amazing and we are so glad that you got to join us for this 300th episode oh thank you so much both both of you it's been an absolute blast i love revisiting these films it's been so much fun watching them in 4k for the very first time and doing so with uh, a chance to really talk about them and really dig into them a little deeper so it, that always for me at least makes re-watching movies that much more enjoyable so thank you for giving me that chance that's going to do it for us we will keep it short and sweet and say we will talk soon hey everyone thanks again for listening if you enjoy the show we'd love to hear from you you can leave us a review on itunes or wherever you're listening these help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you we also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing facebook discussion group a link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.